Welcome to Wadcast. I'm Charlene Gianetti, editor of Woman Around Town. No child left behind. Race to the top. One best way. Familiar slogans for programs aimed at turning around our nation's struggling public schools. While these well-publicized efforts have fallen short, a quiet revolution is taking place in many schools around the country. And rather than taking a page from how business works, these reforms began as grassroots movements that succeeded because they actually energized and engaged those closest to the situation, and certainly those who have the most at stake, namely the teachers and the students. In her new book, After the Education Wars, How Smart Schools Upend the Business of Reform, Andrea Gabor profiles several schools that are making a difference, and in so doing, she lays out a vision for what true educational reform should look like. Education is everyone's business, so I know you will be interested in what Andrea has to say. Andrea, thank you so much for being here with us today to talk about your book. Oh, it's my pleasure, Charlene. Thank you. Let's begin by uh, having you tell us why you wanted to write the book. Well, maybe I should take a step back and, and explain how I got interested in the subject because, as you know, I'm a longtime business writer. And uh, so education would seem to be sort of a little bit of a stretch, but I got interested in the subject because business got really interested in education. And uh, I was commissioned to write a piece for a business magazine, a management magazine, actually, shortly after... Michael Bloomberg became mayor of New York, um, and the piece was supposed to be on the New York City uh, Leadership Academy, which aimed to train uh, this new cadre of principals who are supposed to run these small schools in New York City. Anyway, the bottom line is that the Principal's Leadership Academy borrowed from both the education world um, and also from General Electric's famous Leadership Academy, which had just been renamed after Jack Welch, the former CEO, who was also known as Neutron Jack, you know, because of his you know, management style, and I started wondering, you know, what can Neutron Jack possibly teach educators, and how would those lessons be received? And and really, from that point on, I I realized that education had just become this huge focus uh, for business people, for business people who were also philanthropists. Um, And suddenly I realized that all of these management methods were being imposed on on schools and on districts, and very often they were the, the wrong management lessons. The lessons that I had learned by covering companies didn't work. So now they were going to do it, do it to teachers and to, to schools. So that's really how I got hooked. Well, I like the way you use that word imposed um, on the schools because, you know, on the surface, one would think that, uh, you know, a successful business would have a lot to teach a school. But so, what did they get wrong? Well, you know, this is what is so really interesting. So this this sort of love affair, you know, the the, 
the business world's love affair with education really begins in at the sort of the turn of the millennium. Well, 20 years earlier, as you may recall, American industry was flat on its back. The Detroit automakers were on the verge of bankruptcy, ditto all of these consumer electronics companies, and business, American business discovered that the Japanese in particular at that time had developed this much nimbler approach to uh, management that was based on the quality movement, it was based on continuous improvement, and it was based on sort of actualizing the knowledge that ordinary workers had, you know, basically training them to identify problems and processes and then giving them the freedom and the ability to surface those problems. Mm -hmm. And what, you know, what the business people were doing or what, you know, the new Everform was calling for was not that kind of bottoms-up continuous improvement approach. They were doing the old, you know, top-down, um, carrot and stick, blame the teachers, you know, this very kind of old school management methods that had been really discredited back in the 1980s. So, so that's, that's what they got wrong mm-hmm. in, in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, one of the things is that small schools don't always do things better than large schools. Um, did you find that that was true? But but what did you find that large schools could teach to small? Uh, what what could they learn from smaller schools, larger institutions? Okay, well, you know, it's very interesting because, especially in New York City, you had the the flowering of the small schools movement, really starting with Debbie Meyer um, and the progressive movement in the 1970s. And so these were a group of public schools, traditional public schools, um, that were led by teacher leaders, and they were trying to be very entrepreneurial. And one of these progressive leaders said, you know, when she established this group of small schools that came together and took over one of these traditional large high school buildings, she told the Gates Foundation, small is a necessary but not sufficient ingredient for improving quality. And what she meant by that was small makes it easier for the adults in a building to know the kids, small makes it easier for the teachers in a building to collaborate and improve things. But when the Gates Foundation first came in and looked at this particular building, it was called the Julia Richmond Complex and it had six small schools in it, what they didn't see was that what made those schools work was that they were highly collaborative and the teachers were trained. There was a lot of training involved in teaching the teachers how to be better educators, how to be better collaborators. And in addition, the gathering of those small schools at the Julia Richmond Complex was done in a very intentional way. And all the decisions in that building for well over a decade were done by consensus, collaboratively. They shared auditoria, cafeterias, um, library, you know, all these different spaces that 
could have just created huge problems if there wasn't real collaboration going on, right? So that's what was not well understood, that there's a whole DNA involved in making these small collaborative schools work. It's not just about size, it's also about the DNA. So uh, did the people from the Gates Foundation, when they came into Julia Richmond, already have their mind made up about how they thought things would work? Because you did say that they didn't see what was actually happening there. Yeah, so, so, the, the, so Julia Richmond was one of the first places that the Gates Foundation went when they decided that they were going to do education. And they spent a year looking at what was going on at Julia Richmond. And in fact, if you go back and look at congressional testimony and so forth, I mean, they talk about Julia Richmond as being really an inspiration. But they didn't fully understand what it was that made this building tick. And by the way, there's a real parallel there between how what the Gates Foundation saw at Julia Richmond and how American companies sort of misunderstood what made Japanese companies work back in the 70s and the 80s. Hmm. Because the mindset of American businesses tends to be very hierarchical, very top-down. You know, it's not about collaboration or it didn't used to be. It's much more that way, I think, now. Um, so some of this has to do with mindset. Mm -hmm. I mean, most people would think that uh, with Bill Gates emerging as an influential individual in education policy, that this would be a good thing. No? Not so? <laughs> well, um I, you know, I don't think that a democracy should have an unelected education czar, mm. which is essentially what Bill Gates was. Mm. Um, you know, the other point, and this is very important, education is not like health care. Improving schools is not like curing river blindness or malaria. There are not scientific magic bullets mm. that you point. can dream up in a lab. Um, schools and districts are very complex human organizations, and they have to be treated with care and respect. Mm -hmm. And I think there was very much, and, and again, you know, I, I think the, the Gates Foundation and many of the other reformers really had the best of intentions. And as you probably know, they've just pulled the plug on, you know, a half billion dollar teacher effectiveness plan that turned out to be not be effective. And, and that's actually a really good example because a lot of these teacher effectiveness plans are based on the idea of, um, of incentive compensation, like you can give teachers bonuses and they're, so they're going to work harder. Mm -hmm. Well, for one thing, schools and educators have, have very different cultures than do businesses. Okay, they're not primarily motivated by money, which is not to say that they don't need to be paid fairly and they don't want to be paid fairly, um, but they're much more driven by, you know, concerns around social justice, job security, et cetera. And the business people would come in and say, well, all you have to do, again, it's this carrot and stick thing, you just have to throw some money at them, and usually not a lot of money, and 
instantly people are going to perform better. And there are two big, big problems with that theory. One is it assumes that the problem is the teachers, that if only the teachers worked harder and tried harder, everything would be solved. So that's one problem. Uh, and, you know, and the other problem is that, you know, this is, you know, the whole incentive compensation thing is a fallacy. It's even probably a fallacy the way it's used in many business settings, but at least in business, there's a cultural, you know, people are comfortable with this idea. They were not comfortable with it in education. Mm -hmm. Andrea, what about charter schools? I mean, they were seen as, uh, you know, a solution to all of this, Uh, but it seems that now they're falling out of favor. Is that true? Oh, I think that's probably not the case, but... um, you know, there's sort of like incentive compensation. The idea of the free market and choice is, again, very embedded in the sort of mindset of a lot of people, a lot of Americans. Um, charter schools were, the way they were initially conceived, for example, by the great labor leader Al Shanker, was as teacher and community-led opportunities for experimentation. The idea of, you know, freeing schools, freeing the educators and the communities uh, within public schools to experiment sort of outside the um, boundaries of what the bureaucracy, the education bureaucracy imposed. But that ideal of entrepreneurial experimentation by educators was hijacked um, by the Ed Reform Movement, um, it was animated to a great extent by a desire to, to break unions. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it came to be dominated by the no excuses model, which is problematic for all sorts of reasons. We can talk about that. And incidentally, it's a model that uh, I suspect most of your readers and listeners would never, you know, uh, agree to for their own children. So it was very much sort of done to, you know, kids of color, poor Mm -hmm. kids of color. Mm -hmm. Um, And this whole kind of free market Wild West out there, A, nationwide, it really hasn't generated the great results that were promised. And in some places like Michigan, um, you know, the home state of our education secretary, Betsy DeVos, it's actually helped to destroy education. I mean, the the state of Michigan probably has one of the most uh, unregulated free market uh, charter systems in the country. And since they've started doing that, their their test results have just plummeted. Mm. So what happened in New Orleans after Katrina? Didn't they turn in some way to charter schools? Not in some way. They totally turned to charter totally, schools. Yes. But so, yeah, so, so New Orleans is the first uh, major city that has essentially become an all-charter city. There are virtually no traditional public schools left in New Orleans. And again, it was very much this top-down model. You mm-hmm. had a bunch of outsiders who came in. Um, you know, the foundations helped to fund. The, the national foundations helped to fund these these charter schools. They came in. They fired the unionized teachers, which incidentally also happened to account for a large swath of the city's black middle class. Um, they froze the community out of decision making around 
what kinds of charters they're going to bring in. The um, New Orleans is essentially a um, a, a two part system. They have uh, sort of selective schools that. Uh, remained part of the Orleans Parish School Board, and then they have the majority of schools which were taken over the, by the state um, as quote-unquote failing schools, and I can explain why I'm putting that in air quotes, uh, and those are the non-selective schools, and the vast majority of those non-selective schools were the poorest um, black and brown kids go to school are no excuses, charter schools. Mm. So this whole idea of choice really, you know, was no choice um, for the poor kids in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And, there was a, and there was a backlash in the community because they had absolutely no say in, you know, what happened within that charter system. You know, they did other things. They tried not to reopen schools in the Lower Ninth Ward. There were very good community groups that tried to start charter schools, and, you know, they ran up against the gatekeepers. Uh, I have two wonderful examples of community groups that finally succeeded, but only because they were politically very savvy. And, uh, you know, one of the schools does very respectively, and the other school is now one of the top uh, non-selective schools in New Orleans. But again, they had to fight the charter establishment in order to establish themselves. So there are lots of reasons. Now, I will say that the charter schools in New Orleans, you know, there's been research that first through the test scores for first through eighth grade, the elementary school test scores are better than they would that they would have been under the previous system. Um, I would have to point out that you have to take these test scores with a big grain of salt because mm-hmm. test scores in Louisiana are among the lowest in the nation. Mm-hmm. Those. They have not yet, and we're now talking about uh, almost 15 years after Hurricane Katrina, been able to demonstrate anything about test scores for um, high school kids. There's a lot of evidence that um, that the, the, the kids who struggle the most have actually been pushed out of the charter system, that, that um, dropouts have risen. Um, but part of the reason we don't we don't have any concrete numbers is because the state of Louisiana has been really non-transparent about what's happened with the charter system. So lots of problems there. I mean, Andrea, when you speak with parents that are caught in situations like this, what do they say? Well, you know, I don't think you can talk about parents broadly. In a a city like New Orleans, you have to understand that that the population there was in complete shell shock. You know, these were, for the most part, you know, poor people, disenfranchised people who lost their homes, who had to travel all around the country. They come back to the city. You know, this is a population that, you know, since slavery has been abused one way or another by the system. So Mm -hmm. they are really in many ways beaten down. And so it's, it's very hard, I think, for Northerners to just understand just how institutionalized um, this abuse has been in the South for generations. And so, 
you know, it's, it's a very different circumstance than when you're talking to, you know, parents in New York City, say, who may feel like they have a little bit more agency. In a, in a town like New Orleans, parents don't really feel like they have any agency. Yeah, so difficult. So, you know, we do hear a lot of teacher bashing, um, but, uh, you know, one of the statistics that some of the statistics you cited about uh, 20% of teachers are exceptionally good, 60% are solid, and only 20% perhaps shouldn't be teachers. But why doesn't that story ever get out? We, we hear so much criticism of teachers. Well, you know, again, this goes back back to those mindsets that we talked about earlier. Um, you know, it's ever been thus in most companies. If you ha- you know, if you ask management what percentage of your workforce is underperforming, they'd probably say, you know, it's it's the classic bell curve. They'd probably say, oh, ten to twenty percent, mm-hmm. right? And yet, even in corporate America. Oftentimes, misguidedly, the focus is on weeding out the bad apples, right? So one of the things I did with this book is every time I talked to a principal, an ed reformer, anybody in a leadership position, I said, give me your estimate of how many teachers you think are really bad teachers. And by the way, that 20% was the highest estimate I heard. Hmm. The range was between 10 and 20%. So you have an ed reform apparatus that you know, for years has been focusing on beating up on and weeding out the 10 to 20% who may be non-performers rather than, you know, motivating and empowering um, the 80% who are, the 80 to 90% who are. So there's really something wrong with that. Yes. Well, obviously the teachers hated Common Core and all this testing. Uh, what's the what should be the role of testing in schools? Well, you know that, that that's a really interesting question. So, it, 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 to answer that question, you f- we first have to understand that testing is now the tail that wags the dog. You know, ever since no child, child, ever since no child, child left behind, uh, left behind, it's been all about test scores, right? You know, we're testing kids over and over again. In New York City, for example, um, some kids went through 12 different kinds of standardized tests because there were tests for English, there were ELA, there were tests for math, there were tests that were only designed to rate teachers, then there were baseline tests for rating the teachers, then there were experimental tests. I mean, it just, the system was just crazy, and the tests would change every year, right? Especially Mm -hmm. sort of before and after the Common Core. Um, And so there was no way to compare apples and oranges, for example. So the system was really crazy. Um, But, you know, I have to point out that, you know, if you take a look at a country like Finland, right, where, which has gotten great praise for its education system, you know, they do, you know, a test at the end of high school, not just a test, but they test lots of different subjects at the end of of high school, and students are expected to pass those tests. But the tests don't dominate. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we need to go back to understanding that the only real pedagogical role of testing is for teachers to use assessments to gauge where kids are at and then to find, you know, how to kind of 
tailor lessons better to their classes and, and figure out how to improve the lesson. Um, but the standardized testing that we do is just, has really, really hurt education, and it's really narrowed curriculum in ways that I that, that not just I, but many people think are very dangerous. And you know, especially you know, in you know, in the era of, of Trump, I uh, you know, I think we really need to think about the role of education in in helping to raise citizens. Well, now when you talk about when you talk about testing uh, in New York City, they are going through that evaluation about the test to get into some of the elite high schools. Uh, right. Do you think that that's something that should happen? What, the changing of the The changing the in those tests, you know, for admission well, to Bronx. Well, you know, um, I'm sure there are ways to, so, so I think the major goal there is that there are two few, relative to the number of, uh, of black and Hispanic kids in the city, there are too few kids who get into those schools. And I'm sure there's probably a way to make, um, to include more of those kids without destroying the schools themselves. Mm -hmm. I have no doubt that there's a way to to do that. And, you know, other people who've looked at the this uh, equation more carefully, you know, are probably better off speaking to it. Uh, I'm not sure I have a lot of confidence in the de Blasio administration, though, to do it right. Mm -hmm. The de Blasio administration has not been a great education administration. Mm -hmm. Uh, so when you talk about teachers, uh, you know, being under so much pressure, I mean, I, I have relatives who are teachers and uh, a couple of nieces, and they end up every year having to buy supplies for their classrooms. Uh, and now, of course, with school shootings, uh, you know, there's talk about arming teachers. I mean, does this, all of this detract or put more pressure on this, uh, you know, professional population that is just trying to do their best for their students? Well, I think, look, the reality is that a lot of, you know, if we want our young people to go into teaching, why would they do that? Right. You know, there are a lot of places in the country that are going begging for teachers because it's such, it, you know, they're poorly paid, they are constantly under criticism. They now have sometimes have to fear for their lives. Um, and, and we have to understand that a, a big impetus behind the way the ed reform movement has evolved, that whether it's pushing for choice, pushing to kill teachers' unions, etc., it's actually all about saving money and, and not spending money on education. Mm -hmm. And I think as a society, we have to decide how important is education, and it's not just about it's not just a question. You can you can be a lot smarter if you actually trust teachers and and focus more on the grassroots. I think you can probably do more with less, but there's no question that education budgets in lots of parts of the country have been just cut to the bone, yeah, okay. and that the places that have chosen to actually not just invest in education, but try to achieve some kind of equity between poor districts and, and, and rich districts are the ones that have achieved the most. And, mm -hmm. you know, Massachusetts is probably the best example. But, Andrea, I think that that's one thing that, uh, you know, comes down to the local level. And a lot of people who pay their taxes, if they don't have children in the public school, 
they object to any you know increase in their taxes and and that impacts you know the students in that area i mean how do you get across the message that you know education is important to everyone not just parents well, you know, something really interesting is happening in the Midwest. So if you look at Wisconsin, for example, where, you know, you've had this sort of free market conserv- conservative mindset carried to the nth degree, you've had such huge budget cuts. I think Wisconsin has cut education funding by it's still something like a billion dollars. Um, Schools have been closed. It's just been, you know, they've, they were the first to put the kibosh on public sector unions, which of course have now suffered yet another blow with the Janus decision by the Supreme Court. Suddenly what you see in Wisconsin is at the grassroots level, you're actually seeing towns raising their taxes to help fund schools. Mm. So things have gotten so bad that they're finally realizing that they desperately need to fund their schools. So, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic that, you know, if we survive in our current form, that as a democracy, that people will finally realize that this is an incredibly important civic resource, both for our communities and for our children. Well, you are pretty tough in the book on President Trump, and he's obviously not going to be remembered as the education president, and Betsy DeVos is getting failing grades across the board. But what are your greatest fears? I mean, we have, you know, two more years left, left a few more years left in this administration. Um, what are your fears about the policies that, uh, you know, might further harm public education as we go on? Well, look, I mean, my biggest fears about this administration aren't around education. They're around the survival of our democracy, whether or not we end up going to war. I mean, they're they're much bigger concerns. But if you you look at Betsy, you know, it's a little bit like asking about a mafia don, um, you know, what's wrong with one of his fixers. And, you know, I'm not, this is not hyperbole. I mean, you have to remember that right after Donald Trump was elected president, um, you know, he was, you know, a court decided that he had to pay $25 million to settle, uh, you know, a fraudulent for-profit scheme involving Trump University. Right, right. Um, So, you know, that's directly, (laughs) you know, education-related. Right. And uh, what has DeVos done? She went and she killed a fraud investigation within the education department around for-profit colleges, mm-hmm. right? So, and, and they are the, you know, absolute worst bottom feeders. And she's essentially effectively killed oversight of that sector, of the, of the for-profit uh, college sector. Um, you also have to then look at, you know, we talked briefly about Michigan, which is DeVos's uh, home state, she and her husband were instrumental. They were probably the most important people in terms of driving through that ed reform legislation, which deregulated uh, charter schools in Michigan. Now something like 80% of the charter sector is run by for-profit EMOs, educational management organizations. the school system there has, you know, plummeted in quality. Mm. And, you know, if, 
if Michigan is any harbinger of where she wants to take the nation, it's not a pretty picture. Yeah, yeah. Well, Andrea, what do you hope the impact of your book will be? Oh, wow. Well, I guess, you know, one major hope is that, you know, as, as, a, as a country, I think we, you know, we suffer a little bit from the not-invented-here syndrome. Uh, we're always in search of the shiny new things. And what I would love to see is, both locally and nationally, that we start trying to scale what works. Because a point of my book, and, and most of the chapters in the book on New York, on, on Massachusetts, you know, on this fabulous district in Texas, um, are basically show what has worked below the radar screen of the mainstream ed reform movement, these fascinating experiments that have been educator-driven. And so what I'd really like to see is let's start focus, let's start looking at what, what works, what's worked for decades, and figuring out how to scale it. Um, I also think we need to start thinking about a new federalism where, you know, local districts and communities retain more power over their schools, even, even without giving up state and federal oversight. Mm -hmm. So a new kind of federalism. And, you know, as we said, uh, education is critical to democracy. So I'd like to see us broaden the curriculum again so that we're raising citizens, not just workers. Um, these two ideas are not incompatible. You can do both. And we need to start teaching civics again, but in really creative ways, not mind-numbingly boring, test-oriented ways. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, you know, reinfusing arts and music and so forth in terms of the curriculum. So I think I, those three things are where I would like to see change. Well, Andrea, this is such an important book. And I, I hope so many people, I hope you get it into so many hands and into the hands of the people who can really uh, create some change. Uh, the name of the book is After the Education Wars, How Smart Schools Upend the Business of Reform by Andrea Gabor. And uh, you can go to Amazon to buy it, and we will have more information on um, Woman Around Town about the book. So, Andrea, thank you so much for joining with us, with us today to talk about this such an important topic, education. Great, Charlene. Thank you so much. Really appreciate Really enjoyed it. Thank you.